Important though to, to state that both CPUs and GPUs are silicon-based microprocessors and they are both considered semiconductors. So for a lot of like the investment hype we've had in the last year or two, you hear people talk about, oh, this is a semiconductor play or whatever, but you actually do need to be quite specific on what type of semiconductor it is. And this does seem to be one of those instances in which if you want to invest in the space, you kind of have another level of due diligence you need to do just to make sure you have clarity on what exactly a company does. When a company blames the weather, is it only something that's so far out of your direct influence? I mean, think about inflation and interest rates. It smacks up. There's nothing we can do about this. And I think the real reason for this is mostly competition in the payments sector is increasing. There is no short of payment tech companies out there they're growing growing nvidia is growing like it has an it has a significant amount of growth for something you know that's chip based as i mentioned in the last segment this company isn't really growing you know it is becoming increasingly profitable and it's expanding out its margins and it's incredibly dominant but it almost looks like a value stock this is not a growth stock you know you can't have a one percent revenue decline and say we want to trade at a valuation of 122. <laughs> Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, the podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm Mike, and joining me in today's episode are Emmett Savage and Amory Kingsman from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that if you're an Irish business on a digital journey, to check in with the experts at Vodafone VHub. With this new digital advisory service, Irish businesses of all sizes can have free, one to one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of Vodafone's experts. Search Vodafone VHub or check out the Vodafone business website for more information. Anne-Marie, Emmett, welcome to another episode of Stock Club. Good to have you both on. Uh, we're going to kick off this early morning recording with the quiz just to get you on your feet early. So uh, I have two companies here and you have to guess which one is which, okay? Mm-hmm. So company A has net income of $4 billion. Company B has net income of $4 billion. Company A has sales of $25 billion in the last year. Company B has sales of $28 billion in the last year. Uh, company A has a profit margin of 18%. And company B has a profit margin of 14%. And now here's where it gets interesting. Company A has a market cap of $1.1 trillion. And company B has a market cap of $66 billion. Well, there's only a handful of companies in the trillion dollar club. And until you said that, I thought it was going to be Cisco and Cisco, which is the router and gooter crowd that's C-I-S-C-O, and then the food delivery crowd, um, S-Y-S-C-O. And they always had this incredible, almost Twilight Zone parallel existence, right to the point where one of them had the CEO called John Chambers, and the other CEOs was called John Chambers. Uh, And it was kind of like the talk of uh, the investing community 20 years ago. But anyway, a 1.2 trillion behemoth and a, what was the other one? 60, what's your stadium? 66. 66 billion Hmm. and they have the same profit sales and income and margins wow Hmm. well i'm gonna go with nvidia for the big one nvidia is company a and company b has been is it qualcomm no whoa paypal paypal PayPal. yeah paypal has almost the identical numbers to nvidia at the minute Hmm. that is nuts they uh Price to sales goes from 40, 42 to a nice 1.7, I think. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's the stage that pay, uh, PayPal has gone down and Nvidia has gone up in the space of last two years, maybe. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild. Okay, uh, let's get into the show. Emmett, you have a story for us today, and it's described as the greatest con in Silicon Valley history, which is kind of a big, big opening statement. It's like the greatest goal in the new camp, you know? It's like of a place where there's a lot of cons. We've got the yeah. best one. So it, it's always fun to go back and visit some of the bizarre stories that have happened over the dot-com era, era, and the company you picked out is Pixelon. So what's the story behind it? Yeah, Mike, Anne-Marie and listeners sit back for a wild tale. At the time, in the late 90s, there was a whole load of companies out to change the world through this new technology called the internet. And as we all know, several got it right, like Google and Amazon and the likes, but a whole pile got it very wrong. And very few companies did wrong more than Pixelon, um, which was one of the late 90s tech boom's greatest startup catastrophes. And I definitely thought it was a story worth telling. And I'm pretty certain that 95% of our listeners won't know of Pixelon. Uh, Did either of you guys hear of Pixelon before I said to you, hey, let's have a chat about it? No. Okay, good. No. Great. Well, and I've been looking up at this stuff as well, yeah. Totally. Well, okay, you're, you're, you're a pair of stock nerds. So if you haven't heard of it, I'm comfortable that our listeners, who are also stock nerds, <laughs> uh, probably haven't heard it. So as a prologue, it's worth setting the scene to remind our listeners that to build a successful tech company, executives not only have to sell their product, but they also have to sell themselves. And Pixlon was founded by a guy claiming to be called Michael Fenn, who wooed investors into pouring money into a company that promised to put streaming video into everyone's internet browser. Um, And that was a really profound concept in the late 90s, like pulling video off television and turning it into a file that can be played over a computer is no small feat. Even today, like technically behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff happening. So let alone in mid to late 90s, 1997, this was a really big promise. Um, Like the amount of information carried in a typical video is so vast that it would take a day or more to download a 30-minute sitcom back then. Most people still reach the internet through this noisy modem. And if you were a web surfer in the late 90s, you'll always remember the sound of a dial-up and this kind of whisper noise that accompanies every internet session. And even like grainy images would take 10 minutes to download. I remember the first time I encountered the internet, I was in uh, Dublin City University, DCU, um, in probably about 93 and it was horribly slow with no images so like a couple of years later you could download an image and it would just build one strip at a time and really images on the internet were just not a thing so kind of when you transpose that onto video this was a big promise okay so fen rounded up a team of engineers and named himself the cto for a streaming video service and so ambitious was this vision that it would have been beyond groundbreaking. Like Netflix, just for context, didn't even stream until 2007. So this vision, if you like, was 10 years ahead of what transpired to be reality. So at first things were looking good and the 
uh, former print and now online journal Wired said that by December of 1998, Pixelon was, quote, announcing that Paramount Pictures picked its technology to use in the online promotion of its latest Star Trek film. As a startup, Pixelon attracted plenty of attention from venture capitalists. The company's technology struck a chord with early stage investors who saw much market potential for applications for clear, faster video speeds over high-speed internet connections. So that was the vision, and that was the promise, and that was the business. Now, apart from there being three pillars to investing in in, in a company like this, which are the technology, uh, the intellectual property, and the team behind it, back then, anyway, there was also a pretty important part of any tech company that was the launch party. Now, on this particular checkpoint, Pixelon was the stuff of legends. In October 1999, to showcase its technology, it threw one of the most lavish launch parties in tech history, which they called iBash 99, and they held it in Las Vegas. The event cost $16 million, right? And featured performances like uh, from The Who, who actually reformed for the gig. Uh, Kiss, Faith Hill, Dixie Chicks, like these are big, big, and Tony Bennett. I mean, Tony Bennett, that's a triple A-lister right there. And 16 million, that was nearly all of their money. Can you just imagine getting a, a $20 million or so check or $18 million check and, okay, boss, what, what do you want us to do with it? Mm, is Tony Bennett still alive? Yes, boss, get him on the phone. But, 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 no, no, I want Tony Bennett. I want a live gig from Tony Bennett. But, boss, we need, I don't want any buts. Just get me Tony Bennett. Well, all that is fine as the event was, I suppose, aimed to demonstrate this superior streaming technology. And they decided they were going to broadcast all these major A listers over the internet. So it starts to make a little bit of sense when you think, right, if you really want to get eyeballs on your tech, you get Kiss and The Who and Tony Bennett and all these people and you broadcast it live. And the company announced that um, it was going to be on Times Square. They had this huge, huge, giant, super giant screen um, in New York and it was going to be an eight hour live feed. This was absolutely ginormous. However, um, the live stream displayed error messages to the thousands, and it was really only thousands of people who had dialed in to watch the event. Um, and in fact, anyone who got to see it online ended up using Microsoft's streaming service instead of Pixlons. So just to be clear, not one frame, not one single frame turned up via Pixlons tech platform. So it didn't even nearly work. They had Tony Bennett there sitting there singing out, crooning away. And if you were watching it online, which wouldn't have been a great experience anyway, you were doing so with Microsoft. So alas, as they say in Hollywood, the plot thickens. As this technological failure uh, became evident, an even far more shocking revelation came to light. Pixlin's very charismatic founder, Michael Fenn, was actually a fugitive named <laughs> David Stanley. Um, this employee of the company noticed his resemblance to a notorious con man on the run from the law, which made the let's get Tony Bennett for a few, a few songs thing look small. I mean, this was huge. Imagine looking at your boss and going, I thought I was, I've, I've seen him on America's Most Wanted. But anyway, 
then or Stanley, as it actually is by law, had shaved his head, grown a beard and adopted the Fenn persona to hide his true identity. I mean, this guy, as I said, was on Virginia's most wanted list for several years after skipping bail following a pretty big stock swindling conviction. When his real identity was discovered, he resigned in early 2000, surrendered to authorities and left behind a company he built on tech that didn't work. And this all left the company's remaining executives scrambling to resurrect the company's image. Yet the bad news still wasn't over. Two weeks after Stanley slash Fenn's departure, creditors sued Pixelon, claiming the company never paid them for half a million dollars worth of uh, stuff, services and products, which I'm sure is true. And their goal was to bankrupt the company to sell off the remaining assets and have first dibs and whatever's left. But through a bit of ducking and diving, Pixon held off the death nail for a couple of years, but then eventually filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2002. Sad day. That's about it. I'm getting the truck rolling down the hill vibes off this guy. <laughs> so what, <laughs> yeah, happened exactly. to, uh, what happened to David Stanley, assuming that is his actual name? Oh, there is so much to this guy. And I'm surprised there hasn't been that I know of. I think there was a HBO show about the guy, but I've never seen it. And just when I was researching for the piece, I, I saw something was done. But according to this old article from the UK newspaper, The Guardian, published in July 2000, so it's 23-year-old article, quote, a hastily formed coalition of company officers and directors were planning to oust Pixland's founder and chairman, Michael Fenn. They called the police because they were worried Fenn, a big man weighing in at 350 pounds, might turn oh, violent. Christ. I know, that's quite... I mean, he might turn violent. Not only did this guy harangue workers over, like, the PA system, the public address system in the company, he actually made staff pray in his office, and he spent most of the company's money on this insane launch party, but then he f they figured he'd start swinging the fists when the cops arrived. I mean, this guy is unreal. Like, wait to hear this. One Sunday, he instructed all employees to meet in his office for what he described as a worship service. And at the meeting, which was held in near darkness, he played the piano, sang a hymn that he had written, and his wife sat close by wiping tears from her eyes, as witnessed by the staff. And can you imagine being there? Look, he used to sign his emails, giant, what was it, big giant head of Pixelon. That's how he signed off his emails. I, like, I'm no shrink, but all of this is a bit unhinged to me. But I think before describing what happened to him, it's also worth describing where he came from. If, I don't know, do you guys watch Sky Crime? It's a channel on, on Sky TV over here. I love it. It basically <laughs> just dreams stories of bad guys and bad people who are nuts and and there's always a backstory there's always a backstory nobody's born bad absolutely nobody but anyway stanley was born into a poor rural south uh community and he was the son of uh and grandson of an appalachian preacher basically and that kind of brought a status to the family and he used this status to uh, and he apparently had near hypnotic speaking style apparently when this guy spoke you listened but he used this kind of charisma and his status to fleece pretty much impoverished neighbors out of more than a million dollars. In 1989, he pleaded guilty to more than 50 
fraud-related charges. So a judge sentenced him to 36 years in prison and agreed to suspend all but eight if he repaid his victims. So in early 1996, having paid back only a tiny fraction of the money, he got out of Dodge and he vanished. And according to that Guardian piece I mentioned, he turned up in the sleepy town of San Juan Capistrano or Capistrano. Do you know that place, Anne-Marie, San Juan Capistrano? So he turned up in San Juan Capistrano uh, in late 96, just as the internet was transforming like the most unlikely people into overnight multimillionaires. His weight, which was once uh, 220 pounds, which is, I suppose, lean for a tall person, had ballooned to 350 pounds. And he and his new wife, Sheila, who clearly loved him tinkling the ivories and singing songs of praise, lived <laughs> out of their Hyundai and showered in a nearby beach. And he told locals that Sheila had recently escaped the Mor- a Mormon cult and he and that was hell bent on getting her back and he wrote a a letter to his former wife which was quite telling who refused to go on the run with him and it gave a, a sense of the man and who he is he he wrote it has always been and always will be a mistake to lose faith and underestimate me he wrote god has blessed me with a unique ability to defy reality so to your question what happened to him? Wait, wait till you hear this. Soon after the board meeting where it was decided that the big man had to go, word circulated in Pixelon's inner circles that someone had found a document on his computer laying out a detailed plan to leave the country in the event of anyone discovering that it was all a con. The letter discusses using hair dye, uh, colored contact lenses and that kind of stuff to create a new identity and eventually re-enter the country, quote, I would only do this after a face change through plastic surgery. So I don't know. Look, I mean, coming back to Sky Crime, I you don't you shouldn't write stuff down if you're a bad guy. <laughs> you shouldn't go home and go, dear diary. Like you shouldn't do it. It's just absolutely you're it's cracked. You're leaving like evidence. The, but anyway, the, uh you the OJ Simpson book, you know, if I did it or something like <laughs> if that. If I, I did it. Is. How that yeah. got published, yeah, I'll never understand. Awful. I mean, serial killers yeah. do it all the time. It seems to be a rite of passage that serial killers keep a trinket or write something down. It's just just mad. But anyway, it makes no sense to me. But what I think is especially strange uh, is that I actually can't find what happened to him after that part where the cops came into the office and took him away. Um, it's as if reporting just stopped. And I'm sure there's better Googlers than me out there who might go into a rabbit hole and find out what happened. To him. But I think it's uh, there's very, very little. So when he went in behind bars after that initial arrest and was awaiting his fate, um, it just goes quiet. And it leaves me wondering if he somehow engineered his way out and created a new identity. I don't know. It's all very odd. I, I can't even find out if he was sentenced or if he had an appeal or whatever. But it seems the tale of... Michael Fenn um, or or Stanley or whatever his real name is, uh, is one that just stopped from that point onwards. And and thus he left behind a story of Pixelon, the original Netflix, uh, I suppose, up in flames. Yeah, maybe his plan worked. Maybe he maybe he left a decoy <laughs> in his office. Yeah, I wonder. The I wonder. <laughs> it wouldn't be great All to right, have some Pixelon. Oh yeah, sorry. It wouldn't be great to have some pixel and swag. 
you know, people are like, oh, I'd love some Coca-Cola <laughs> swag or Airbnb swag from the early days. But like, imagine have some Pixel on swag. That would be that would be just brilliant. It's probably mm-hmm. on eBay. Nice. Did you check e- eBay? Cap. I didn't actually. I think I will after the show because it would be kind of cool to have a Pixel on cap. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's how you track him down. Maybe that's yeah. his next <laughs> swindle is selling Pixel on swag on the Internet. I'd say he listens to Sock Club. Stanley, contact us, do an interview with us. All right, Emmett, what's your take from all of this? So David Stanley, Michael Fenn, Pixel on the lot. Well, as we always say, management teams not only matter, but they're the most important thing in a business. And because you can't assess a team or a founder with numbers, it's also the hardest thing to get right. Uh, But if there was ever a poster child for the need to do some kind of qualitative assessment on a founder and her or his team. It's definitely Pixelon, um, as history has shown. But it's one of those really tough ones. You can run filters all you like, but then you really have to try and meet the management team, if at all possible. In fact, I was talking to Chris Mayer yesterday, who some of our listeners will recall wrote 100 Baggers and Where to Find Them, and who will be discussing again um via my wall street very shortly with what i hope is a very exciting announcement but i was chatting with chris and um and he was talking to me about some businesses he's looking at that have the attributes of 100 baggers but for him it was very important to go and meet the founders look them in the eye and which he did and and we had a great chat about that so uh, you know really that last bit is very difficult for let's say, normal everyday investors who've got a life and career of their own to do, which is why I think we we need to find somebody who we trust who can at least assess uh, management teams uh, if you don't have the time to do it yourself. But yeah, the bottom line is management teams and founding teams really matter. Mm, absolutely. All right. So that was Pixelon, the greatest con in Silicon Valley history. Okay, we're moving on then to... Uh, arm and its recent listing so it's going to go public in the next month so i'm really talking about for a while that you know we've been waiting for one of the, the blockbuster ipos to finally come around and this yeah. is it so the chip designer has released its plans to go public in what would be the largest ipo for the last two years so first things first what exactly does arm do Yeah, so Arm is a British semiconductor company and software designer uh, based in Cambridge, England, and they primarily design um, CPUs. So we'll just do a bit of a difference there between a CPU and a GPU. A CPU handles all the main functions of a computer. It's very much the foundational aspect, whereas the GPU is a specialized component that excels at like running a bunch of smaller tasks at the same time. So CPUs down at the bottom, and then you build GPUs on top of it, depending on like how specialized you need your computer to be. Um, important, though, to, to state that both CPUs and GPUs are silicon-based microprocessors, and they are both considered semiconductors. So for a lot of like the investment hype we've had in the last year or two, you hear people talk about, oh, this is a semiconductor play or whatever, but you actually do need to be quite specific on what type of semiconductor it is. And this does seem to be one of those instances in which if you want to invest in the space, you kind of have another level of due diligence you need to do just to make sure you have clarity on what exactly a company does. Um, 
Interestingly, though, ARM uh, isn't the chip maker itself. Rather, the company is responsible for coming up with the architecture of uh, chips. So they bring up the overall designs, including components and programming languages. And, and then those other companies basically license that technology and build the chips themselves. Um, its original value was designing chips with a very low energy consumption compared to the x86 chips, which were really common in personal computers back in the early 2000s. So this company's been around for a while. Um, ARM used to specialize in desktop computers. So, you know, your kind of average run of the mill, big screen that was probably in your dad's office that was running that really slow internet that Emmett mentioned earlier. Um, but recently, because they're fo- focused on kind of low energy in the last kind of 10 to 15 years, they've moved into the smartphone market um, and they effectively dominate that market. They have virtually no competition. Um, they most definitely have a monopoly. It's estimated that their market share in the mobile phone CPU sector is 99%. So truly just all out there on its own. In its filing statement, it actually said, we estimate that approximately 70% of the world's population uses an ARM-based product. That is crazy. Um and they said that of chips containing its technology, it had a 49% share because it does make chips as well for computers, but that's less of a share. Um, and its total addressable market as of last year was $200 billion. So it's a, it's a great place to be. Um, this kind of dominance and its monopoly-like status meant that CNBC declared the company a neutral party or the Switzerland of tech. Um, basically, it's just such a foundational play, really. It's it's very easy to 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 invest in, I guess. Um, And then on top of cell phone CPUs, um, ARM has kind of smaller developments in software development tools like DS5 or RealView or Keel Brands. It also does system on a chip infrastructure and software. And it does do a couple of GPUs, which it's a much more competitive space. You know, that depending on what type of specialized GPUs you're making, that would pull it into competition with something like NVIDIA or Qualcomm, who I mentioned earlier, who, you know, we really associate with Apple. so that is kind of where they're at at the minute. Chip designer, specializing in cell phones, bit of computer stuff down the line. But I would main their main like revenue generation is coming from the cell phone market. Yeah, 90, 99% market share is always a good thing, I think. Yeah, I think it sad. used to be floated before. I'm, I'm, I'm 99% sure it was, it was floated yeah. before. Stuart Rose was yeah. the founder and my dad was an investor in ARM. Um, I really hope he still is. I don't know what happened in between. Uh, like so I'm working off 30 year old information, but I remember my father telling me that he bought a small amount of shares in this thing that does chips and we had a laugh about that. <laughs> yeah, it was privatized in 2016 when SoftBank oh. picked it up. But uh, yeah, it was it was publicly trading on the London Stock Exchange up until that point. Any idea what happened? Mm. Uh, just asking for a friend. So if you used to be a shareholder, <laughs> it's um, a clean sheet, I guess. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know if it was an all cash deal. Um, no, uh, we'll no. find out. Yeah, I'd say your dad's got Masayashi sends cash in his back pocket yeah. from it somewhere. Uh, yeah, I'd say that's water under the bridge, whatever happened. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it led investors to see its books up in the build up to the IPO. So, how are we looking? How are the numbers going? And what market cap is it targeting to go public at? Yeah, so actually, interestingly, we can go back and reference that initial 2016 purchase when it was privatized. Um, back then, uh, SoftBank picked it up for $32 billion. At the time, it was SoftBank's largest ever transaction. Um, and as of today, it's coming in at a valuation of about $64 billion. Uh, so nice doubling since 2016. Not bad to see. Um, ARM reported revenue of $2.7 billion for the last 12 months. That was down 1% year on year. And its net profit fell 5% to $524 million. Um, 
interestingly, Arm actually isn't going to receive any of the proceeds of this IPO. It's basically SoftBank attempting to sell down its stake, which, you know, is kind of a funny thing because we tend to see IPOs, particularly in tech, where the company's saying, oh, you know, we want to generate X amount of money to geographically diversify or invest more in R&D or, you know, pay off people who've worked for the company for a really long time that hold stock. But this is kind of just an instance of SoftBank cashing in, um, which isn't exactly like the number one thing that you would want to see. Um, it also revealed in its prospectus that ARM depends on China for almost a quarter of its revenue, which is not exactly as well where you'd want to be. That is actually up. It only generated 18% of its revenue in that region last year. And you know, when we're in a period in which Joe Biden is kind of trying to bring the chip market back to the United States, and there's been a lot of trade restrictions between the two countries, that can be kind of a... a Dangerous relationship isn't the correct word, but just a bit of a precarious relationship. Um, it also details a number of risk factors because of that exposure to China. Arm warns that it is particularly susceptible to economic and political risks. Um, and interestingly, China, as it makes up such a large portion of their revenue, the cell phone market in that region has actually been declining the last two years. So even on top of that, you know, there's the additional worry of, you know, that's a primary international cell phone market. So, you know, if sales are declining the company's going to have a hard time. Um, Another Chinese risk factor that was detailed in the prospectus, which also is related to the numbers, is the fact that Arm's business in the country is actually run through a local company that neither it nor SoftBank can control. So the company is called Arm China, and it holds the exclusive rights to sub-license its intellectual property to Chinese customers. That would include really big players like Alibaba. Um, And because of this kind of, again, precarious relationship, Arm has been trying to distance itself from, it's not a subsidiary, I guess it's like a related company. Um, And so they attempted to shift ownership to a unit of SoftBank um, a couple months ago, which would mean that it would only have a 4.8% indirect ownership stake. Um, And that was all so detailed in the perspective. But Interestingly, the Chinese government kicked off about that and said that within their records, the UK group continues to hold nearly half of Arm China. So there's a bit of a disconnect there in between numbers and reporting financials. And that was also stated in their prospectus that they are having IT trouble. And that meant that they're apparently confused about who holds 45% of the stake of Arm China. So a couple of just points that need to be clarified, really. Um, and then just kind of a final note in terms of the IPO, SoftBank has held talks with a number of significant players within the chip space, but also just tech more broadly. Uh, this includes Amazon, Intel, and NVIDIA. And they're hoping that before IPO, that some of these big players will come in and buy up a big chunk um, of the floating, um, as I think we're going to talk about in a second. NVIDIA did attempt to buy the company last year outright. So it, if NVIDIA were to come in and make a large investment, maybe buy out 10%, I think that would be interesting to see and we maybe just give a bit of reassurance to some early investors. Hmm. So to summarize, it's not growing that fast. It's a really expensive stock and it's got loads yeah. of risks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not a great... Not a great intro to the public markets if you're looking for a big pop, but I suppose no. this going after its customers basically to become investors could be could be that kind of protection. So mm-hmm. we mentioned NVIDIA and last year uh, they had a failed acquisition attempt for $66 billion. So there is yeah. obviously clearly value here. Um, do you think maybe it's borrowing from the hype? Like this is an IPO of opportunity with such such hype around the semiconductor industry and then this very close connection to nvidia as well which is mm-hmm. as we've seen gone nuts yeah I, I would definitely say so i'd also say it's maybe preying on the fact that as i kind of said at the top there is a lack of clarity in in the semiconductor market i just think investors 
it like it is a complicated thing and it's it's probably you know if each of us had to at some point like build a cell phone or a computer we would be better at being like oh i just i can distinguish between a cpu and a gpu but most people who probably come from an investing background are not doing technical work like that so um yeah i i think there is that rough association with nvidia and it means that people are very very interested and then probably the company also want to capitalize upon that um an interesting fact though is when softbank agreed to acquire arm back in 2016 um they did so again for kind of a weird offshoot approximate relation reason, um, which was that ARM has a really, really small exposure to the Internet of Things sector, which back in 2016 was a really hot topic on the market. Everybody wanted to find some Internet of Things company. You know, it was kind of like the NFT or the AI or the metaverse of the year. Um, and so SoftBank way overpaid for ARM simply to say that they had gained exposure to this thing. Um and it just kind of ended up as like an accidental win for them that the company's main business, which is cell phone chips, which is that's not a bad business to be in, just not going to be this insane grower that SoftBank was able to generate money from that. So it was fine. Um, so it already has had this, you know, let's be offered at an insane valuation because of some niche thing that we are somewhat involved in um, with its current financials that we mentioned um, and those are approximate financials, I believe, that have come from the Financial Times. Like the estimated market cap is is an approximation. They're, I think the rough idea that I've seen reported is between 60 and 70 million. But even if we split the difference there and say, OK, we're going to have a market cap of 65 billion, that means that it would be trading at a price to earnings of 122, which is crazy because NVIDIA obviously has a massive valuation. It's 197 price to earnings ratio. But NVIDIA is growing like it has an it has a significant amount of growth for something, you know, that's chip based. As I, as I mentioned in the last segment, this company isn't really growing. You know, it is becoming increasingly profitable and it is expanding out its margins and it's incredibly dominant. But it almost looks like a value stock. This is not a growth stock. You know, you can't have a one percent revenue decline and say we want to trade at a valuation of one hundred and twenty two. So I definitely think this is mm-hmm. a high play. Um because it has a monopoly, obviously, it's not going anywhere, but it's certainly not going to be growing at an AI pace because it doesn't have the exposure to that type of market. And that was kind of backed up by something that independent analyst Richard Windsor said. He uh, publishes Radio Free Mobile, and he said that ARM's profile looks more like a smartphone chip specialist like Qualcomm than NVIDIA. While NVIDIA stock has rocketed this year in AI excitement, Qualcomm has traded almost flat, held back by concerns of the slowing smartphone sales, which is also what I mentioned when we were discussing the prospectus, that there is slowing sales in China. Likely those sales are going to that slowdown is going to expand out to the rest of the world. You know, there's just incredible um, market penetration in, this, in the smartphone market right now. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely a hype play, I would say. Yeah, I also saw some funny stuff there where SoftBank bought Soft SoftBank bought some shares from the Saudi Vision Fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry, mm. the SoftBank Vision Fund, which is backed by the Saudis, and they bought it at a $64 billion valuation, and then I think they're looking to recoup it in the IPO. So there's some there's some funny stuff going on, basically. Um, yeah. It doesn't really fill me with confidence. I know people are saying this is kind of the harbinger of a new IPO market and stuff, but I don't know. My suspicions are a bit hankered. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, I there's just too many weird little red flags. I mean, it, it is impressive to think that you could bring a $60 billion company IPO at the at, at the minute. Like, that is nice to see. Okay, there's mm. an interest for companies that have lofty valuations that are in these spaces. But I do think it's kind of a money grab. That would be 
yeah. my instinct yeah yeah okay so that's the arm ipo um okay if you like listening to us you're gonna love reading from us we're delivering to your inbox one of the most unique products on the market and it's completely free no one else is covering the markets we cover with charging and fearless where we deliver to you a weekly stock pitch that could be from anywhere in the world so that is a completely free stock pitch every week you'll have it read in about 30 seconds flat and we can almost guarantee most of these companies are going to be brand new to you which is where you get an edge in investing so sign up now in the show notes for today's episode Okay, big deal or no deal, Emmett, I'm going to start with you and the payments processor and Stripe rival Adyen. So it fell about 50% since last week's earnings reports, uh, last week's Q2 earnings report. Big deal or no big deal? Yeah, Adyen is a leading European payments company. And if you've ever waved your phone in front of a white terminal, especially in Ireland anyway, to pay for something, you've probably interacted with their architecture. Well, they reported lower than expected earnings and revenue in the first half of the year due to competition from rivals such as Stripe and a hiring spree. And as you said, Mike, shares dropped about 50%, which knocked 25 billion off the company's market cap. And it's really the talk of Bloomberg and CNBC. And I would leave the business TV channels on um, in the background uh, if I can. And it's just been the hot topic over the last two days on on television. And basically, analysts are concerned that Agin's performance in the U.S., um was poor like the revenue growth was less than half the growth rate of 2022 and the business blamed a shortfall on higher inflation and interest rates which prompted its north american digital customers to concentrate more on cost savings as opposed to growing so their customers are all about rolling in a ball as opposed to expanding outwards um and i don't really like how external that is and what i mean what i mean by that is when a company blames the weather, you know, just tongue in cheek, when you, when you see a company blame the weather, it's like, mm, is it only something that's so far out of your direct influence? I mean, think about inflation and interest rates. It smacks of there's nothing we can do about this. And I think the real reason um, for this is mostly competition in the payments sector is increasing. There is no short of payment tech companies out there they're growing growing um i also might say before i get on to answering your question i noticed that uh kathy woods arc invest has did it say doubled doubled their stake in agent did you see that Anne marie yeah i also know that there was a bit of confusion around the figures because um agent has has changed the way it reports revenue Yes, correct. Mm, so yeah. was, they went from mm, gross revenue to net revenue, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, which, of course, could be misunderstood. And it takes a, a I suppose, when, it, when a company restates how it talks about its numbers, everyone is used to just looking at one number. And if it falls off a cliff edge for a new reporting reason, that also has to be considered. Big deal or no big deal? Mm. I think, I know it's a digital. We, we talk a switch. It's like a light switch. It either is or isn't a big deal. Part of me thinks it's a big deal because the competition is increasing. Um, And then part of me feels it's no big deal because fundamentally the business is still one. I don't want to call it a duopoly, but they have have an integration, a tight integration with Shopify. I think their future is very certain. So if you said, is it a big deal from a perspective of the growth? Uh, Yes. Is it a big deal from a company going to survive? I say no. Okay, so which... I'm going to say it's, yeah, it's a big deal. I think it's going to take a while to recover, but I don't think it really is a big deal when you when you keep your eyes to the horizon, which we all have to do. What would you say, Anne-Marie? 
I um I think it was a bit of an overreaction. I think the sell off. I was uh, a couple people wonder online yesterday if the massive like a fifty percent drop is significant, mm. and some people were wondering if it some like some of that could be credited to like robo traders which when the change happened to the way revenue was reported it meant if you just like looked on a quarter quarter basis it looked like the company like fell off a cliff Mm -hmm. and they were wondering was that like did that trigger a bunch of automated trading that then sold off the stock because a 50 percent drop is for a company so large that's crazy like that is like very akin to like when netflix sold off um, what was it beginning of last year because it had the like one quarter of subscriber drop and it just like half the market cap was gone and we were all going but Netflix isn't going anywhere so I do think it might be an overreaction and in that sense it's maybe a little bit of a big deal because is there an opportunity there for imagine mm. you know is it mm. worth a look would you buy today Anne-Marie I have to go in and have a look at the at the valuation and have a look at its figures and listen to some calls. I haven't checked in with them in probably six months. Um, Mm. But like, as you said, it's like, it's a, it's so embedded in its infrastructure. It's not going Mm. anywhere. So definitely not. Mm. And it's, and all the, all the growth issues are coming from the U S where it's been forced to grow because it almost has the market saturated in Europe, but yeah, it's got a very strong base Mm. there. I I like your theory on the robo investors. It's a little, uh, Little tinfoil hattie. Sounds good. Yeah. Um, Anne-Marie, so we're moving on to Instagram th- Instagram threads. Uh, so build as the Twitter killer. It's not really playing out as such. So engagement has basically fallen off a cliff since its launch. Uh, usage is down 79% in August compared to July. So big deal or no big deal? Um, big deal. If I think if you're a meta holder and you were thinking, okay, this is the second age of meta-dominated social media um i don't think that this i i I personally don't think the space is going to survive i'd say within a year it will be shut down due to um lack of use i think it's kind of down to some of the factors that we talked about like when it launched which was branded content came onto it very very quickly and there was a lack of a kind of community element you know we talked about the fact that a number of like influencers or i suppose culture creators on existing meta platforms such as instagram probably wouldn't translate very well to a text-based medium so it just meant that like there's no real reason for the average user to be there unless they want to use it like 2007 facebook um so just a few of the numbers there in terms of this threads drop within the first few hours of its launch on the 5th of july threads garnered 5 million users and then within a week that had ballooned to about 100 million users um however um its daily active users hovered around 49 million at peak uh, but by august 1st that number had cratered to 9.6 million so that's a daily active user drop of about 82 percent which that's pretty astounding um and it, that has kind of continued through the month of August. We're seeing daily active users drop about 1% every day. So just that kind of slow death of the platform. Engagement figures are also down significantly. So data shows that usage of the app peaked on July 6th at about 14 minutes a day. Um, and that has come down to about 2.3 minutes per day on average. And it is worth mentioning that like even at its peak, 14 minutes a day is not that long. Like, I think average usage of TikTok is in the hours. It's, it's I think it's over two hours for young people. So that's really not a monetizable space, to be honest with you. Like, so there's no money there. Um, 
and even like Twitter, which has become just the bedlam of the internet, continues to average more than 100 million active users a day. So, you know, even the thing you're trying to kill is is outperforming you, God, a measure by a measure of 10x now at this point. So, um, yeah, unless they improve something dramatically, I can't see this going on for much longer. Mm, completely irrelevant, but I quite like Instagram threads. It it's not it's not like this cesspit of grot, <laughs> which I found Twitter. I mean, say um, TikTok to be. Um, it just kind of it's it's just small laughs. You know, it's just lots of funny little videos. That's what serves me anyway. That's reels. Stuff. That's Instagram reels. Oh what? Oh right. Sorry. Now I know yeah. what you're talking about Twitter. Oh, I'm so down with the social media kids. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. We haven't we haven't gotten uh, access to Threads yet because they didn't want to do the GDPR regulations with the EU, so we can't use Threads. I we haven't seen it. Oh, I'm Scarlet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scarlet. By the way, for our American listeners, well, I was thinking, I was like, where did you get access to threads? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Moving swiftly on. Okay. <laughs> Moving swiftly on is right. Okay. Um, we're just going to finish off with a quick message from our sponsors and friends of Vodafone Business. So if you're an Irish business looking to get ahead in the digital journey you're on, Vodafone Business is the place to go, especially with their recently launched VHub Digital Advisory Service. So with this new service, businesses of all sizes can get free one-to-one digital support and advice tailored to their business by simply booking a call with one of their digital experts. So either go to Vodafone Business website or search Vodafone VHub for more information. I'm Maria Nemes. Thanks for joining me today. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on TikTok at MyWallStreet on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and we will talk to you next week. Mm